You know, periodically in magazines or in newspapers, you see diagrams that look like this, that give you a picture of one particular part of the world or the city or a nation, and then a little section of that is exploded into a bigger map, uh, and, and you kind of are focused on certain details. I was reminded of that this week because that's what we've been doing for the last two or three weeks in our summer study in the Old Testament. We've been zeroing in on one particular time in Israel's history and looking at it in great detail and taking it apart. We're looking specifically at that time in Israel's history when they were allowed to return from captivity after several decades in Babylon and Cyrus, king of Persia, and Persia had now taken over from Babylon as a ruling world power, issued a decree for whoever wanted to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. And we looked at the book of Ezra and we saw that a few people had gone back. Not too many of them. And shortly after getting there, they built the foundations of the altar. They began worship services. And then they dug the hole for the, for the sanctuary. But because of both internal and external opposition, they quit. And for 16 years, the work had ground to a halt. And it's that point in their history that we've been looking at last week, and we will look at this week, because God sent two prophets named Haggai and Zechariah to stir them up and to begin the work of rebuilding. Last week we looked at Haggai, and there was a short book, uh, and we looked at four sermons that Haggai preached. And basically he said to them in the first sermon, get your priorities right, stop making excuses and start rebuilding the temple. In the second sermon he encouraged them. He said, don't be put off by the fact that this doesn't look like a very glorious beginning <coughs> because the future glory of this temple is going to be far greater than the former glory. So he encouraged them. In the third sermon he said, now just because you've obeyed doesn't mean I'm, I'm obliged to bless you, but I'm going to from this day on. And we noticed that that day was a very specific day. It was exactly 70 years after the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And so God was basically saying, your exile is over as of this day. And I am going to bless you. <clears throat> and in the fourth sermon, he pointed out the fact, don't worry about political instability all around. I am the God who shakes all the nations. But I have Zerubbabel, who is my leader, who is like my signet ring, and I am given him authority. So go ahead and build. That was the message of Haggai. But God sent along another prophet named Zechariah who was a contemporary of Haggai's, and he used two prophets and their preaching to stir them up. And if you look at Zechariah, you'll find he's very, very different from Haggai. Haggai was primarily a message of exhortation. He said, come on, this is no time for you to be building your own houses while God's house is in ruins, so stop, change your priorities, get busy. Blunt and to the point. Zechariah's message is largely one of encouragement, not so much exhortation, although that's there. Haggai was very concrete. Two chapters, you can read it, you can understand it. It's a no-brainer when he says... What are you doing building your own houses? Build the house of God. You don't require a long sermon to explain that. If you try to read Zechariah in preparation for today, you know it is totally abstract. You can hardly make sense of the book. Uh, Haggai is concise. <laughs> Two chapters. Zechariah is expanded. Fourteen chapters. Five times as many verses to say the same thing in a very different way. Haggai is an older activist. You know some of us are activists. We feel closest to God when we are on the move doing things. Zachariah was a younger visionary. He dreamt big dreams and he was a big picture guy. Haggai lived with the details. Zachariah lived with the big picture. Haggai's message was, come on, take part. And Zachariah's message was, take heart, be encouraged. And you know, you need, we need both. So I'm glad that last week I preached on Haggai. And this was a difficult, difficult message that landed hard on some of you. And was meant to. Today's message, I trust, will come alongside and encourage you in that work. And... Uh, 
Precisely because Zachariah is a much more complex book, can I say something at the beginning? I, I get feedback from my favorite critic and my favorite fan every night, you know, on Saturday night. And so this is the result of that feedback. Uh, this is more complex, so you're going to hang in there with me a little bit, and you're going to wonder in the beginning, where is all this going? But if you'll hang in with me, don't try to remember it all. Just follow me as I take you through. We'll pull it all together at the end, okay? All right, it begins with these words. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido. So he gives a little genealogy, both a grandfather and a father in there. You know, and Jeremy mentioned the influence of, of parents and grandparents. It must be important because six verses later in chapter 1, he says it again. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido. Why this triple introduction? Well, the names in the Old Testament, the names were not incidental. Zechariah means God remembers. Berechiah means God blesses. And Edo means at the proper time. So the three introductions taken together are the summary of the book. God remembers his covenant with his people and God will bless his people at the appointed time. So keep busy and keep working. So we already got the whole message in the first verse. Now, in order to make sense of this book as a whole, I want to just kind of give you some of the big picture first and then we'll pull the relevance together. Zachariah's message is divided into two parts. The first eight chapters were given while the temple was actually being rebuilt. So he was a contemporary of Haggai in these messages. Chapters 9 to 14 were messages that were preached approximately 40 years later, after the temple had been built. And then we can further subdivide those first eight chapters into the first six chapters, which are obscure because there they are seven visions of invisible reality to encourage present obedience. They all came to Zechariah most likely in one night. And they were heavily laden with symbolism and metaphor. And so I need you to walk you through that very carefully. And then after having given them these visions to encourage them, in chapter 7 and 8 there are four messages that clarify present obedience. Okay, now that I've encouraged you with these visions of invisible reality. You see, visible reality, what they could see with their eyes, was tremendously discouraging. It, they, they, it, that's why they gave up. That's why they quit. Visible reality was too, too daunting. Invisible reality is what encourages them. And so that's what the visions are all about. And once they got them aroused, the next four messages in chapter 7 and 8 were very much like Haggai. This is what you need to do. And then chapters 9 to 14, which are also the very confusing part of the book, really have to do, looking way down in the future, there are three movements about the coming of Messiah. So Haggai said, build this temple, I'm going to fill it with your glory. And Zechariah said, the glory is actually tied up in a person, Messiah, who is going to come. So that's really the big picture of the book. Okay, I want to walk you through those visions right now. What what are they? The first vision... There are four horsemen that rode throughout the land and they come back and they give a report to Zachariah or to God that the nations are at rest. That's visible reality. The nations who are not worshipping God seem to be at rest and prosperous like Persia and Babylon before that. But Israel, God's people, are in captivity. They are lackeys of Persia. So that's visible reality. Invisible reality is found in this vision. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So visible reality, the nations at rest, Israel in a mess. Invisible reality, God says, no, those nations that are at rest, they are the ones that are under judgment and I am zealous for Zion. I'm zealous for Jerusalem and I will come and bless her. 
So that's the first vision. In the second vision, Zechariah sees four horns. And he's told that these four horns are the four weapons that represent that which destroyed Jerusalem and Judah. And sent them into captivity. So these are the military weapons of Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus king of Persia that destroyed the temple and sent them into captivity. Then the next part of the vision, the four horns are destroyed by four carpenters of four craftsmen. And God says, these, this is the way I destroy the weapons that are against my people. And so visible reality is the powerful weapons that sent them into captivity and threatens to hold them there. Because Persia is still in military power. Invisible reality is the invisible weapons of God that are far more powerful and that will eventually conquer all of the visible weapons. Reminds us of Jesus when he said, my, soldier, I'm not, my soldiers are not part of this world. They don't fight with these world's weapons. The, the, the third vision is a young man running around with a tape measure or a ruler and he's going to measure the city of Jerusalem. What's the, who measures cities with a ruler? The point is it's a vision. In, in, symbolically it is saying Jerusalem is such an insignificant little city that one individual with a ruler can measure it. Similarly the walls, no walls, all broken down and burned. All you need is a little ruler to measure what's left of the walls. That's visible reality, discouraging. Invisible reality, here it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left and another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, the guy with the ruler, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory with it. See the contrast again? Visible reality, insignificant little Jerusalem, no walls at all, a little ruler is all you need to measure it. Invisible reality, he says, I am going to so fill this place with blessing, it is going to overflow, you can't measure it, and you don't need walls because I will be all around that city. That's invisible reality. Now the fourth vision has to do with Joshua. Along with Zerubbabel, who was kind of the executive leader, Joshua was the spiritual or the religious leader, he was the high priest. And this is a vision concerning him. <clears throat> then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Visible reality was a leader who was stained with sin. You see, Joshua in dirty clothes was a picture of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in her present state of exile, temple destroyed, walls destroyed in captivity to Persia because of the sin of her people. And Joshua and his, with his dirty clothes represented even the sins of the priests and the leaders. If you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll find that, this, that the leaders were just up to here in the same sins that caused Israel to, to, to be into exile. <laughs> and not only that, Visible reality is the accusing voice of Satan. You're no good. You're hopeless. What makes you think God is going to be able to use a sinner like you? It's just like our brother Sean was talking about earlier. Invisible reality is there's an advocate. <laughs> there's an advocate who silences the voice of the accuser. And the, vo and the words of the advocate of forgiveness are more powerful than the words of Satan, the accuser. And he says, take off his filthy clothes. I'm going to put on new clothes on you. And so that's the, another contrast between visible and invisible reality. In the fifth vision, there's a golden bowl. And the golden bowl has seven, seven tubes that are conducting oil to seven lamps that are burning. What is that vision all about? It says here, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. 
And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. You see, visible reality was a mountain of stones. I mean, there was a magnificent temple that Solomon built and Nebuchadnezzar raised it to the ground. And when they conquered, they didn't go and send up a cleanup crew after that. All those stones, all those burnt walls, all that stuff, half burnt stones. Just imagine, huge rubble all over the place. It's like in the early stages of our construction program. You know? Everything was just rubble. That was visible reality. A big mountain and this tiny little community of people with an insignificant man. Human being, Jeremiah, Joshua. That's visible reality. Invisible reality says, no, that oil represents the Holy Spirit of God flowing into this insignificant man named Zerubbabel. And with him, mighty in the spirit, no mountain can stand before him. Not only that, he said, he's going to finish the work. It looks unfinished right now. This little hole in the ground, all this rubble, this is going to be done. He's going to bring out the capstone. And the capstone was the last stone that was going into place. It's going to be finished and people are going to shout and there's going to be a great celebration. And he will stand with the plumb line. And the plumb line, of course, is a way by which you measure that everything went according to plan. In other words, it will be built just the way God wanted it to be built. And Zerubbabel is the man who will do it because of the Spirit of God within him. So that's invisible reality. Now the sixth vision is probably one of the most confusing of them all. And yet one of the most encouraging ones. In the sixth vision, there's a scroll. There's a scroll that's flying through the air. And this is what God says to Jeremiah. The scroll is all about. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other side, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out. It will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. See, part of the reason why Israel went into captivity was because of the violation of the laws of social justice. In the next vision, the second part of the vision, he talks about a basket. That basket, called an ephaph, was the largest basket in which dried goods could be sold. If you've ever been in any third world country, people sell spices and flowers and whatnot in huge big baskets. You know. And so it represented Israel's cheating of the poor. They would take their money and would never give them a full ephaph. That was the reference to thieves. Then when they went into the law courts and the poor would succeed in getting them into the law courts, there they would swear falsely. They would have false witnesses and once again exploit the poor. And the scroll, which is God's law, which judged Israel and they were sent into exile for this. And so visible reality, if you will, is the powerlessness of the people of God to obey the law of God. So, what's the point you coming back and rebuilding the temple again? You have never been able to obey God's law. You're going to fail once again and you're going to go back into exile again. So forget it. That, that was visible reality. Invisible reality is a weird vision, but it addresses the issue in a way like splenity. Here's the second part of the vision. Look up and see what is this that is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a measuring basket. That was the ephaph in which they stored the flour. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised. There was a leaden cover in the basket. And there in the basket sat a woman. And he said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Then I looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. What is this vision talking about? You see, 
He said, you couldn't obey the law of God and therefore you went into exile. That's invisible reality. Invisible reality says, when I come, my glory will be so strong and so powerful that you guys' hearts will be changed and you will actually be able to obey the law of God and it is sin that will be exiled. Sin will be exiled. You will not so build again. That was the meaning behind this vision. And then the seventh vision is simply four horses that go all over the world again and it is a picture of a politically unstable world but where God is still governing it. The nations all around, just in Israel's time alone, three transitions of government had taken place. From Assyria to Babylonia to Persia and very soon it was going to go to Greece and then the Seleucids and then finally Rome. And God said over all of this, I am still reigning. And so here's the last vision. The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north country. The one with the white horses towards the west. The one with the dappled horses towards the south. And when the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. And so they went throughout the earth. So the emphasis to throughout the earth, throughout the earth. And then he called me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. So it's a picture again in metaphor and vision of the fact that though the world is chaotic and unstable, it is God and the spirit that God sends out from his presence that governs. And this section ends with the crowning of Joshua himself. Take the silver and the gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoshadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. And just as Joshua the dirty priest was a picture of Jerusalem's sin, this Joshua is in fact a picture of Jesus, you know, the, the one in whom both king and priest would be perfectly bent together. And by the way, in Hebrew, Joshua and Yeshua and Jesus are all exactly the same word. And so I want you to put these things together now, okay? Now that you've seen the individual visions and see what a powerful contrast is represented here between visible reality that discourages them and invisible reality that encourages them. Here are the marks of visible reality. The nations are at rest, Israel in captivity. Powerful enemy weapons, Jerusalem small and defenseless, leaders accused by Satan, a mountain of rubble, past inability to obey God's law for which they were sent into exile, and global political instability. You've got to admit that that's a pretty powerful sevenfold obstacle for us to go out and do God's work. An invisible reality, each of the seven visions counters each dimension of visible reality. God is zealous for Israel and the nations are judged. God's weapons are more powerful than the enemy's weapons. Jerusalem will be filled and defended by God's glory. There will be an advocate whose voice of forgiveness is more powerful than the voice of the accuser. Zerubbabel will be filled with the spirit and the mountains will move before him. Sin will be exiled and Israel will be empowered to obey the law. And God's spirit is ruling the whole of world affairs. So this is the burden of the first of the seven visions and as a result of that he says be strong Joshua be strong Jerobabel be strong people of God and get ahead and do the work now the next section which is the four messages that clarify present obedience uh, basically can each be summed up in one single sentence they're all set up with a question you see the Israelites were told by God to only fast once one, one big fast a year and that was the day of atonement but in the exile, mourning the destruction of Jerusalem, they had instituted three more fasts. And so they fasted in the fourth month, the fifth month, and the seventh month, and the tenth month. And so they come to the priests and they say, what should we do? Should we continue all this fasting? <laughs> and so there are four messages and they, it, 
That question sets up the four messages that clarify present obedience. So the first thing he says is, listen, empty rituals are useless. You guys should ask yourself, why did you really fast? Were you fasting to me or were you fasting to make yourself feel better? Really the question you should be asking yourself is not the fasting, but why was Jerusalem destroyed in the first place? Why were you guys in exile in the first place that you had to fast like this? And that, he said, was because of your past disobedience, especially disobedience to the social justice laws, where you oppressed the poor and took advantage of them and cheated them and lied in the courts and things like that. But then comes the blessing, just like Haggai. He says, from this time, I'm going to bless you. He said, now forget about the past. Forget about fasting. Think about feasting, because I'm going to bless you. I am zealous over Zion. I'm zealous over Jerusalem. And I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with wisdom and vitality. And there's a beautiful picture in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8 about old people sitting on the sides and the young people playing in the streets. It's a picture of vitality of youth and wisdom of age combined together. And I'm so glad that in this church we have exactly that combination. And so he said, I'm going to bless you in my zeal. And I'm going to bless you for the sake of the nations, these nations in Asia and in Sri Lanka and other places that we've been hearing about in India and uh, Kazakhstan and all of those places. For, for, that, for that purpose, he said, I'm going to bless you. And he said, I'm going to fill you with contagious joy. This is going to be my blessing. The heart of my blessing will be such joy that there will be people who will come to you and say, look, we have heard that God is in your midst. We want to come with you. The presence of God, he said, will be so tangible in this place because my glory will fill this place that people are going to come here and say, we have heard that God is present in a way that he's not present anywhere else and so we want to come. And therefore he says, build and live justly. If the seven visions said, be strong, the four messages said, be strong and build and make sure that you obey the laws of social justice. That's one of the reasons. In addition to the holiness laws and the purity laws, he said, make sure that you do not forget the cause of the poor and the disenfranchised. Righteousness and justice both go together. Now, this is the end of the immediate application of Zachariah's message to the people. As I said, the next four, five chapters, looking way down in the future and therefore much more confusing much more confusing but what but what you absolutely need to understand are these five chapters have three major movements related to messiah the first movement is that messiah is messiah's coming and israel's blessing and we find it in zechariah 9 in these well-known verses rejoice greatly O daughter of zion shout daughter of jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey he will proclaim peace to the nations his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And we know that this was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. And Israel blessed was the picture on Palm Sunday. Lazarus is healing, blind people able to see, lame people walking and leaping. That was the blessing. Israel was blessed when Messiah came. That was movement number one. Movement number two, Messiah's rejection and Israel's curse. And this is found in chapter 11. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And we know that this was fulfilled in Judas's betrayal of Jesus. 30 pieces of silver was exactly the price that he was given to betray Jesus. And when he gave it back as a result of a stunned conscience, they just threw it into the potter's field at that time. So this was a picture of Messiah's rejection. And Israel's curse coming from that, then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hoofs. And when we get to Malachi two weeks from now, you will see how that part of the problem became true. 
So Messiah's coming and Israel's blessing. Messiah's rejection and Israel's curse. And finally, Messiah's universal triumph. And we find that in chapter 14, the last chapter, several verses. Then the Lord will go out and fight against these nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Verse 8, on that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. And the glory of God will be so intense amongst his people that the glory will spill over and everything, even the common things, will become holy. And so the book ends with these words. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. From the, from the humble little clay pot in some widow's home to the sacred pots in the temple, they will all be equally holy. Messiah's coming will just overflow and touch everything with his glory. So that's the book of Zechariah as a whole. The seven visions says be strong. The four messages say build. And the three movements in Messiah's coming says and what you're building for is the coming of the Messiah that will touch the nations of the world. So okay, so that's the message. In tandem with Haggai, it works and the people began to build once again. How does it work in your life and my life today? <clears throat> First of all, it reminds, me, it reminds us again of what I told you last week. The primary purpose of prophecy is not to fuel speculation about the future, but to encourage present obedience. The purpose of Zechariah was not so people would have a Bible study in the last five chapters trying to figure out what was going to happen in the future. No, their job was to be encouraged and build right now. All prophecy serves that function. And as I mentioned to you last week, I say it again. Any prophetic statement uh, or prophetic exercise that takes your eyes off present obedience and makes you worried about the future is, is guaranteed to be a wrong and a mishandling of prophecy. Zachariah had many, many things to say about the Messiah, but he just compressed them into a whole lot of detail. They were all kinds, he never addressed gaps. We know there are gaps between Messiah's coming and his universal exaltation. We've been living in 2,000 years since that happened. Zachariah says nothing about that. Also, Messiah's exaltation took place in two stages. For we know three days after his crucifixion, he rose from the dead. And Paul tells us Jesus today is reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is exalted today. That's why Puri goes back. Into a dangerous situation because he knows that Jesus is Lord. And yet he's not fully recognized by the nations as Lord. So all these gaps are not mentioned in Zechariah at all. That ought to give us a lot of cause for pause. If we start meddling around with prophecy to pull it apart and try and put dates in between here and there, we are mishandling prophecy. The book of Revelation served exactly the same purpose. It was written to a people, the church, building the new temple. The new temple made up of living stones like you and me. Only the threat there was Caesar. Another external threat. And so Revelation paints a picture of Jesus on the throne. And he says, don't give up, don't quit. Continue building, continue worshipping. Because Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. That's the purpose of prophecy, always. To exalt the magnitude of Jesus in his present exaltation so that we can continue to obey him right now without fear. So I just want to remind you of that. The one I want to focus on is the second one. Fill your mind with invisible realities that are revealed in God's word, that put visible reality into proper perspective. I told you that all these visions have direct relevance to you and me today. I want to walk you through them again. This is a contrast in Zachariah's time. Every one of them applies to you and me today. Take the first one, for example. The nations that rest Israel in captivity. I mean, do we not feel like that sometimes? You know, we, we see all the people around us who do not follow God, who don't have any time for God in their life, and they seem to be blessed. Their life seems to be moving along wonderfully. Whereas you and I who are attempting to follow and obey God seem to take it on the chin a lot. 
Uh, you haven't struggled with that? Just wait. You, you'll get to that point. Yeah. One way or another, whether in the realm of thinking or in the realm of experience, it's going to be true of every Christian. We grapple with that. We need, we need a robust understanding of invisible reality to take us through those times because God says, that's just the way it seems. That's not the way it is. The way it is, is I am zealous for you. You are my people. They are under judgment. You are my people. It doesn't matter what it looks like right now. Now how about this one? Powerful enemy weapons. You know, especially where the church is persecuted today, weapons seem unbelievably powerful. They can throw them into jail. They can beat them. They can torture them. They can do anything and get away with it, it would seem. And even today here, any religion can be attacked. Everybody's up in arms. They can say anything they want about Christianity and Jesus and nobody says a thing. You know, the weapons against us are massive. <laughs> but God says, you fight with the weapons of your warfare that are not carnal, but mighty through God. And you know what they are? Humility and meekness and forgiveness. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' weapons that are far more powerful than the weapons of our warfare. It is by praying for our enemies. It is by praying for those and blessing those who persecute us. He says, you will finally conquer. That's invisible reality. And then look, Jerusalem, small and defenseless. The church seems to be so weak, so marginalized, so easily discounted. You know, and, and personally, this one helped me this past week. Tuesday morning as I was beginning this, uh, thinking about this, I went for my walk to the ravine and I was walking through the front of the church. If you look at the front of our church right now, there's lots of glass there. It's beautiful. But glass in this community is vulnerable. It has been vulnerable in the past. So part of my question was, wow, my goodness, all this glass... <laughs> And God said, that's okay. That's visible reality. There's a wall of fire around this place and I will be the glory of God inside no matter what happens. And then leaders accused by Satan. How many, how many times as leaders we feel like what uh, Sean said? We feel worthless. Our own sin catches up with us. And I know that. I've talked to some of you as leaders. I know you struggle with that. I struggle. You know me. And the voice of the enemy saying, ah, get out. You don't deserve to be a leader in this church. Look at the way you've blown it. Quit. Who gives you the right to teach our children? You know. <laughs> but the voice of the forgiver is far more powerful than the voice of the accuser. And he says, I will restore you to a position of usefulness. Yes, you're dressed in dirty clothes, but watch. You are a brand plucked from the burning and I have clothed you with clean clothes and set you apart. So work. Then a mountain of rubble. You know, the work before us sometimes seems like a huge mountain. Yeah, a wood building with living stones, okay? And the living stones are you and me. And guess what? We are flawed people. We're not nice bricks, with, you know, properly made. There's little cracks all over the place in all of us. And given enough pressure at the right time, those cracks show, right? Yet God has called us to build that building with living stones. And you know, for those of us who are involved in the building, I don't mean just me, I mean any one of us who's leading it, it looks like a mountain. How are we ever going to put this group of people together to build a temple that will glorify God? We can't. But he said, but by my spirit, Invisible reality, you will be filled with the Spirit of God and the mountains will move. So build, again, build the temple of the living God. And then this one, but as a community, our past inability to obey God's laws. 
How many times we made commitments to God? We made commitments to take a course. We made commitments to get trained. We made commitments to serve in this ministry. We made commitments to show up for prayer meeting. We made commitments to, be, to give more faithfully. And we don't follow through on those commitments. And sometimes we can say, well, the enemy can come and say, look, you never follow through on anything. You just can't do it. You don't have the power. Invisible reality says, but God's power in Jesus and the glory of God that comes into this living temple, He can change our hearts and create desires. within. If I didn't believe that, I would have quit long ago. It's the, it's the what keeps me going week after week for myself and for you is this absolute conviction and invisible reality that God's word is a power to change lives and can create desires within our heart to obey. And sin will be stuffed in that basket and sent out. And you and I will be here, the living temple of the living God. So go. And then finally, global political instability. I don't know about political instability. I told you last week about the stock market. Guess what happened this past week? Eh? 900 points in one week, I think, something like that. It's okay. I hope, you're un- I hope you're unfluttered by that stuff. It may go up next week, next month. doesn't matter. Yeah, we need to be wise about those things. We're called to be wise like serpents. But we're not called to, be, to have our minds and our hearts affected by that. Because God says, my spirit is ruling this whole world. Is, is there anything more relevant than this? I don't know. I counted every single one of them as relevant for you and for me. So, and where is this revealed? Invisible reality is revealed in the word of God. No wonder that young man Ray wanted the Bible and how good it is that he has the Bible. The trouble is, we have no trouble getting Bibles. We just don't read them. And so I just want to plead with you again. Avail of this opportunity. And it's so good to see, you know, there's the Rubang boy sitting there, you know, filling their minds with the word of God. So many of our young people, 30 of them in, in Bible quizzing, memorizing God's word. You know, don't, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. But uh, don't lose the privilege. Don't lose the opportunity. My life would be completely bankrupt without his word. I really wouldn't know how to survive without the word of God. And it never loses its power. Because it continues to give us these correctives from invisible reality that allows us to keep on persisting in the face of visible reality and building. So, So do that. And then thirdly, and this might be a surprise for you until I explain it to you, Ignite revival and global missions by participating regularly in our concerts of prayer. And you might say, where on earth did you get that from Zachariah? (laughs) You know where I got it from? Church history. Because throughout church history, the 8th chapter of the book of Zechariah has been used to ignite revival through concerts of prayer. I've given you a little exercise in your study guide to study chapter 8 on your own. But Jonathan Edwards in 1740 wrote his humble call to corporate prayer, which is a classic in modern times, uh, and was used by God to ignite the whole movement called Concerts of Prayer in Scotland and here in the United States. He wrote that book in ni- ni- 1740 as a result of studying Zechariah chapter 8. And one generation later, a young shoe salesman named William Carey in England got a hold of that booklet, started putting it into practice, and the whole modern missionary movement was given birth because of that. Zechariah chapter 8 has fueled prayer, corporate prayer for revival and for missions. That's why we have it in our church. Because while, while Messiah is coming one day in universal glory, church history has shown he keeps visiting his church periodically with such manifestations of his glory that whole new movements of mission and social justice are launched. And if we want Tanridge to be a huge impact, if we want to make a difference in the high school across the street, if we want uh, our youth center and our children's ministry, if we want to leave this legacy to, to people from different nations, troubled youth in this community, we need revival, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. If we want 
Puri and Jeremy and all, just to be the vanguard of a whole wave of new people continuing to go out to the nations of the world all across the Silk Road, it's going to take a lot more than just business as usual. It's going to take this reviving work of the Holy Spirit. And He comes when God's people gather together. So, I would just encourage you. And those two, the Word and prayer together, that's it. That's what fuels it. And you know, uh, David Bryant in his book with Concepts of Prayer drew my attention to these four verses from Zechariah chapter 8. And with that we are finished. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. And, and Bryant in his book says that in these verses you find the four elements of that which ignites revival. He said the first is attitude, urgency and intensity. Let us go at once, that's urgency, and entreat the Lord, that is intensity. I want to do it now and I want to do it with passion. That's the attitude. The agenda is an experience of God's glory. They said, we will, let us go at once to seek the Lord, to seek His face. And seeking God's face throughout the scriptures was in fact a euphemism or a short form of saying, I want to know and experience the reality of God here like I haven't done before. Make it visible. Make it manifest. So we know that you're here. The impact will be the nations that are seeking after God. Nations that today are not seeking after God. God says to the book of these days, if you're reading one year Bible, you're reading in Romans 10, when he says, to a people that didn't seek me, I revealed myself. Well, they do eventually end up seeking because people are praying. But this last one is the key. What's the ignition? If the attitude is urgency and intensity, if the agenda is the experience of God's glory, if the impact is nations seeking after God and, the, and social justice, you know what the ignition is? I myself am going. This is the key. Ultimately, it boils down to one individual's obedience. That's why I encourage you. Our next concert of prayer is August the 19th. Mark it down on your calendars. And then the three Sundays in September, after our dedication service, is so appropriate that the Sunday after we've dedicated our new building, we get right into our September concerts of prayer where we pray for the nation. September 16th, 23rd, and 30th. Mark them down, and as the weeks come, you know what? Pick up the phone. Call a friend. Call somebody that you're mentoring. Whoever you have influence over. Say, I'm going. Come with me. Let's seek the Lord. Let's seek His face for His glory. And then we will trust God. To so fill this temple, this building. Because of He fills us with His glory. That truly unleashing our potential and leaving a legacy won't just be nice catchwords, but they will be actually what will happen in this place. And then lastly, you know, we need all sorts of people working in teams to help us finish the task. Let me remind you quickly of the look at the difference between these two guys. Exhortation and encouragement. You need both kinds of people. You know, sermon after sermon exhorting you to do things can become weary. But if all you ever got encouragement week after week and a nice pat on the back and sent you home with nothing to do, that's not very good either. Exhorters and encouragers need to work together in tandem. Haggai and Zechariah work together. And so it allows me from the word of God to do both kinds of preaching. And hopefully other people that get into this pulpit. And that's why our elders are very committed to the fact that periodically you need to hear other voices than mine speak. Because they will speak very differently. They might exhort you in ways I never can because I don't have the authority in that area. They might encourage you in ways that I don't. We need that. 
We need concrete and abstract people. We need the nuts and bolts types who say, come on, forget all this highfalutin stuff. Let's get busy. Let's build this place. Let's clean the place. Let's plant the soil. Let's water it. Let's do the work. We need those people because nothing will get done if we only had visionaries in this place. On the other hand, if you had no visionaries and only concrete workers, you would lose meaning very rapidly. And there would be no meaning to what you're doing. And you can't be sustained. You guys can't work with those kids in day camp the way you do. You know, with bathroom facilities not being available and hot and muggy conditions outside and all that kind of stuff. What gives meaning in the midst of the details? It's the big picture. It's the vision. So we need the concrete and the abstract. We need the symbols and we need the plain English stuff as well. Similarly, we need concise and expanded. We need people who can get to the point and do, say, hey, this is what it is. Get busy. You know, build a house. And we need people who take lots of time and lots of words to explain it as well. We need older people, we need younger people. We need activists and we need visionaries. We need people who say, come on, let's take part. And we need people who say, come on, be encouraged. And so we need all of you. We need all of you saying, we're all in, count me in. I'm in, just the way God has made me is exactly the way this church needs me. And so count me in. I don't want to compare myself with somebody else. I'm not going to say I'm as good as them or better than them or worse than them. I am who God has made me and he has brought me to this church. I have a role to play. I fit somewhere. Count me in on this stuff. Were you ready to do that? Are you? Good. A lot of hesitant people this morning. Okay. As the worship team comes now and leads us in a couple of songs that expresses our desire. Let's begin seeking him right now. Let's begin seeking this glory. Let's, Let's entreat him to pour out his glory in our midst. And let's celebrate the fact that this is the day. This is the hour. This is the time. This is Kairos moment for the spirit of God to come and touch our lives. Um, last night as we came to this point, I just thought of mountains. And I want to just ask you for a moment to receive the blessing. To think of whatever it is in your life that to you seems like a big mountain. Seems like so much rubble and yourself feeling so insignificant or unable to move that mountain. And I want to bless you in the face of that mountain with this blessing from invisible reality. May the spirit of the sovereign Lord flow into you. Just like that oil flowed Uh, into those olive branches. May you hear God's word say (laughs) that before you, and you name your name, before you, what are you, O mighty mountain? (laughs) Whatever you have begun, you will finish. And the plumb line in your hand will give you the assurance that you will finish it the way God wants you to finish it. And the mountain will be no more. Go in Jesus' name.